Section thirty two of the Martyrdom of Man by Winwood Reed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter three Liberty Part five. The achievements of the Portuguese were stupendous for a time. They established a chain of forts all down the western coasts of Africa and up the east coast to the Red Sea. Then, round the Persian Gulf, down the coast of Malabar, up the coast of Coromandel, among the islands of the archipelago, along the shores of Siam and Burma, to Canton and Shanghai. With handfuls of men they defeated gigantic armies, with petty forts they governed empires. But from first to last they were murderers and robbers, without foresight, without compassion. Our eyes are at first blinded to their vices by the glory of their deeds, but as the light fades their nakedness and horror are revealed. We read of Arabs who had received safe conducts and who made no resistance, being sewed up in sails and cast into the sea, or being tortured in body and mind by hot bacon being dropped upon their flesh, of crocodiles being fed with live captives for the amusement of the soldiers, and being so well accustomed to be fed that whenever a whistle was given they raised their heads above the water. We read of the wretched natives taking refuge with the tiger of the jungle and the panther of the hills, of mothers being forced to pound their children to death in the rice mortars, and of other children being danced on the point of spears, which it was said was teaching the young cocks to crow. The generation of heroes passed away, the generation of favourites began. Courtiers accepted offices in the Indies with a view of extorting a fortune from the natives as rapidly as could be done. It was remarked that humanity and justice were virtues which were always left behind at the Cape of Good Hope by passengers for India. It was remarked that money which they brought home was like excommunicated money, so quickly did it disappear. And as for those who were content to love their country and to serve their king, they made enemies of the others, and were ruined for their pains. Old soldiers might be seen in Lisbon, wandering through the streets in rags, dying in the hospitals, and crouched before the palace which they had filled with gold. Men, whose names are now worshipped by their countrymen, were then despised. Minds, which have won for themselves immortality, were darkened by sorrow and disgrace. In the island of Macau, on the Chinese coast, there is a grove paved with soft green velvet paths, and roofed with a dome of leaves which even the rays of a tropical sun cannot pierce through. In the midst is a grotto of rocks, round which the roots of gigantic trees clamber and coil. And in that silent hermitage a poor exile sat and sang the glory of the land which had cast him forth. That exile was Camoish. That song was the Lusiad. The vast possessions of the Spanish and Portuguese were united under Philip II, who closed the port of Lisbon against the heretical and rebellious natives of the Netherlands. The Dutch were not a people to undertake long voyages out of curiosity, but when it became necessary for them in the way of business to explore unknown seas, they did so with effect. Since they could not get cinnamon and ginger, nutmegs and cloves at Lisbon, 
they determined to seek them in the lands where they were grown. The English followed their example, and so did the French. There was, for a long time, incessant war within the tropics. At last, things settled down. In the West and East Indies, the Spaniards and Portuguese still possessed an extensive empire, but they no longer ruled alone. The Dutch, the English, and the French obtained settlements in North America and the West India Islands, in the peninsula of Hindustan and the Indian archipelago, and also on the coast of Guinea. West Africa is divided by nature into pastoral regions, agricultural regions, and dense forest, mountains, or dismal swamps, where the natives remain in a savage and degraded state. The hills and fens are the slave preserves of Africa, and are hunted every year by the pastoral tribes, with whom war is a profession. The captives are bought by the agricultural tribes, and are made to labour in the fields. This indigenous slave trade exists at the present time, and has existed during hundreds of years. The Tuareks, or Tawny Moors, inhabiting the Sahara on the borders of the Sudan, made frequent forays into that country for the purpose of obtaining slaves, exacted them as tribute from conquered chiefs, or sometimes bought them fairly with horses, salt, and woollen clothes. When Barbary was inhabited by rich and luxurious people, such as the Carthaginians, who, on one occasion, bought no less than five thousand negroes for their galleys, these slaves must have been obtained in prodigious numbers, for many die in the middle passage across the desert, a journey which kills even a great number of the camels that are employed. The negroes have at all times been highly prized as domestic and ornamental slaves on account of their docility and their singular appearance. They were much used in ancient Egypt, as the monumental pictures show. They were articles of fashion both in Greece and Rome. Throughout the Middle Ages they were exported from the east coast to India and Persia, and were formed into regiments by the caliphs of Baghdad. The Venetians bought them in Tripoli and Tunis, and sold them to the Moors of Spain. When the Moors were expelled, the trade still went on. Negroes might still be seen in the markets of Seville. The Portuguese discovered the slave land itself, and imported 10,000 Negroes a year before the discovery of the New World. The Spaniards, who had often Negro slaves in their possession, set some of them to dig the mines at St. Domingo. It was found that a Negro's work was as much as four Indians, and arrangements were made for importing them from Africa. When the Dutch, the English, and the French obtained plantations in America, they also required Negro labour, and made settlements in Guinea in order to obtain it. Angola fed the Portuguese Brazil. Elmina fed the Dutch Manhattan. Cape Coast Castle fed Barbados, Jamaica, and Virginia. Senegal fed Louisiana and the French Antilles. Even Denmark had an island or two in the West Indies, and a fort or two upon the Gold Coast. The Spaniards alone, having no settlements in Guinea, were supplied by a contract, or asiento, which at one time was enjoyed by the British Crown. We shall now enter into a more particular description of this trade, and of the coast on which it was carried on. Sailing through the Straits of Gibraltar, on the left hand for some distance, is the fertile country of Morocco, 
watered by streams descending from the Atlas Range. Then comes a sandy shore, on which breaks a savage surf, and, when that is past, a new scene comes to view. The ocean is discoloured, a peculiar smell is detected in the air, trees appear as if standing in the water, and small black specks, the canoes of fishermen, are observed passing to and fro. The first region, Senegambia, still partakes of the desert character. With the exception of the palm and the gigantic Adansonia, the trees are, for the most part, stunted in appearance. The country is open and is clothed with grass, where antelopes start up from their forms like hares. Here and there are clumps of trees, and long avenues mark the watercourses, which are often dry, for there are only three months' rain. The interior abounds with gum trees, especially on the borders of the desert. The people are Mohammedans, fight on horseback, and dwell in towns fortified with walls and hedges of the cactus. In this country, the French are masters, and have laid the foundations of a military empire, and Algeria on a smaller scale. But as we pass towards the south, the true character of the coast appears. A mountain wall runs parallel with the sea and numberless rivers leap down the hill slopes and flow towards the Atlantic through forest-covered and alluvial lands, which they themselves have formed. These rivers are tidal, and as soon as the salt water begins to mingle with the fresh, their banks are lined with mangrove shrubberies forming an intricate bower-work of stems, which may be seen at low water encrusted with oysters, thus said by sailors to grow on trees. The mountain range is sometimes visible as a blue outline in the distance, or the hills, which are shaped like an elephant's back, draw near the shore, or rugged spurs jut down with their rocks of torn and tilted granite to the sea. The shore is sculptured into curves, and all along the coast runs a narrow line of beach, sometimes dazzling white, sometimes orange-yellow, and sometimes a deep cinnamon red. This character of coast extends from Sierra Leone to the Volta and includes the Ivory Coast, the Pepper Coast and the Gold Coast. Then the country again flattens, the mountain range retires and gives place to a gigantic swamp through which the Niger debouches by many mouths into the Bight of Benin, where, according to the old sailor adage, few come out though many go in. It is indeed the unhealthiest region of an unhealthy coast. A network of creeks and lagoons unite the various branches of the Niger, and the marshes are filled with groves of palm oil trees, whose yellow bunches are as good as gold. But in the old day, the famous red oil was only used as food, and the sinister name of the slave coast indicates the commodity which it then produced. Again, the hills approach the coast, and now they tower up as mountains. The peak of Cameroons is situated on the line. It is nearly as high as the peak of Tenerife. The flowers of Abyssinia adorn its upper sides, and on its lofty summit the smoke of the volcano steals mist-like across a sheet of snow. A little lower down, the primeval forest of the gorilla country resembles that of the opposite Brazil, but is less gorgeous in its vegetation, less abundant in its life. 
farther yet to the south, and a brighter land appears. We now enter the Portuguese province of Angola. The land, far into the interior, is covered with farmhouses and coffee plantations, and smiling fields of maize. San Paolo de Luanda is still a great city, though the colony has decayed, though the convents have fallen into ruin, though oxen are stalled in the college of the Jesuits. Below Angola, to the Cape of Good Hope, is a waterless beach of sand. The west coast of Africa begins with a desert inhabited by Moors. It ends with a desert inhabited by Hottentots. In the 18th century, a trifling trade was done in ivory and gold, but these were only accessories. The Guinea trade signified the trade in slaves. At first, the Europeans kidnapped the Negroes whom they met on the beach, or who came off to the ships in their canoes, but the treacherous natives made reprisals. The practice was, therefore, given up, and the trade was conducted upon equitable principles. It was found that honesty was the best policy, and that it was cheaper to buy men than to steal them. Besides the settlements which were made by Europeans, there were many native ports upon the slave coast, and of these, Waidar, the seaport of Dahomey, was the most important. When a slave vessel entered the roads, it fired a gun, the people crowded down to the beach, the ship's boat landed through an ugly surf, and the skipper made his way to a large tree in the vicinity of the landing place where the governor of the town received him in state, and regaled him with trade gin, by no means the most agreeable of all compounds. The capital was situated at a distance of sixty miles, and the captain would be carried there in a hammock, taking with him some handsome silks and other presents for the king. This monarch lived by hunting his neighbours and by selling them to Europeans. There was a regular war season, and he went out once a year sometimes in one direction, sometimes in another. Kings in Africa have frequently a bodyguard of women. A certain king of Dahomey had developed this institution into female regiments. These women are nominally the king's wives. They are, in reality, old maids. The only specimens of the class upon the continent of Africa. They are excellent soldiers, hardy, savage, and courageous. In the siege of Abeokuta, the other day, an Amazon climbed up the wall. Her right arm was cut clean off, and as she fell back she pistoled a man with her left. When the king returned from his annual campaign, he sent to all the white men of Waidar, who received the special title of the king's friends, and invited them up to witness his customs and to purchase his slaves. In the first place, the king murdered a number of his captives to send to his father as tokens of regard, and the traders were mortified to see good flesh and blood being wasted on religion. However, slaves were always in abundance. They were also obtained from the settlements upon the coast. The Portuguese Angola could alone be dignified with the name of colony. The Dutch, English and French settlements were merely fortified factories, half castle, half shop, in which the agents lived, and which the dry goods, rum, tobacco, trade powder, and muskets were stored. There were native traders who received a quantity of such goods on trust, and travelled into the interior till they came to a war town. They then ordered so many slaves, 
and laid down the goods. The chief ordered out the militia, made a night march, attacked the village just before the dawn, killed those who resisted, carried off the rest in irons manufactured at Birmingham, and handed them over to the trader, who drove them down to the coast. They were then warehoused in the fort dungeons, or in buildings called barracoons, prepared for their reception, and as soon as a vessel was ready, they were marked and shipped. On board they were packed on the lower deck, like herrings in a cask. The cargo supposed that it also resembled herrings in being exported as an article of food. The slaves believed that all white men were cannibals, that the red caps of the trade were dyed in negro blood, and that the white soap was made of negro brains. So they often refused to eat, upon which their mouths were forced open with an instrument known in surgery as a speculum oris, and used in cases of lockjaw, and by means of this ingenious contrivance they breakfasted and dined against their will. Exercise also being conducive to health, they were ordered to jump up and down in their fetters, and if they declined to do so, the application of the cat had the desired effect, and made them exercise not only their limbs, but also their lungs, and so promoted the circulation of the blood and the digestion of the horse-beans on which they were fed. Yet such was the obstinacy of these savage creatures, that many of them sulked themselves to death, and sometimes, when indulged with an airy on deck, the ungrateful wretches would jump overboard, and as they sank, waved their hands in triumph at having made their escape. On reaching the West Indies, they were put into regular schools of labour, and gradually broken in, and they then enjoyed the advantage of dwelling in a Christian land. But their temporal happiness was not increased. If a lady put her cook into the oven because a pie was overdone, if a planter soused a slave into boiling sugar, if a runaway was hunted with bloodhounds and then flogged to pieces and hung alive in chains, if the poor, old, worn-out slave was turned adrift to die, the West Indian laws did not interfere. The slave of a planter was his money. It was only when a man killed another person's slave that he was punished, and then only by a fine. It may be said, without exaggeration, the dogs and horses now received more protection in the British dominions than Negroes received in the last century. End of section 32